That was the first of Four Ballades After Chopin by Edward Nesbitt, performed at the opening night of the Texas New Music Festival 2023. Something I think Ed does extraordinarily well in this piece, as well as his Songs of Sorrows, which you should definitely check out, is explore, as he puts it, how the presence of well-known pre-existing pieces in the background of a new set of compositions affects our experience of listening to the music. The Chopin pieces come in and out of focus, both within and between ballades, and in doing so create, I hope, another layer of structure and another layer of meaning. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson. This is part two of our episode on the Texas New Music Festival 2023. I had the opportunity to attend the week-long festival held at the Midtown Arts and Theater Center, Houston. Throughout the week, I got to chat with many people involved in the festival, from attendees and students to guest musicians and lecturers. Altogether, TNMF put on six concerts, ten lectures, and a film screening, and included 20 composer participants. Today, we are going to hear from guest composer Rob Smith, guest conductor Felipe Tristan, executive director Martin Quiroga, and student competition winner Mojgan Misagi. So we're speaking from the Matchbox 2 sound booth at the Texas New Music Festival. I'm here with Dr. Rob Smith, the guest composer here for the festival 2023. We're going to talk a bit about his music. We're going to talk about the concert that you have coming up on Sunday, which is going to feature all of your music. Um, you are also doing focal sessions where you're meeting with students here, and you are um, doing a lecture, which I believe is titled yeah. <laughs> yes yeah. yeah how to how to succeed in comp music composition something, it is something, something like that. of that sort yeah. yeah I'm just gonna talk a little bit about the basics of um, trying to get a composition career started just some things I've learned along the way yeah yeah I think that I think it's missing from a lot of places it's great just to have somebody say I've done this and it's tough and uh, let's talk about it yeah I mean it's hard we try to do it in our program once every couple of years to make sure we're hitting all of the undergraduate students that are coming through. Um, and I did, I was fortunate enough to have some composers do that. Yeah. And uh, the main was, was Stephen Montague, who is an uh, expat who lives in London. Okay. And he had a Fulbright grant to Poland in the late 60s. And on his way back, he stopped off in London and he never left. Um, and he's built his whole career as a freelance composer in London. And he had kind of a handout and came when I was a graduate student at UT Austin and had this discussion about here's some career things that you should keep in mind. And so basically what I'll be presenting is all the things that he presented except updated um, for all the technological changes and culture changes and things like that. And then some other things that I've personally learned along the way and gathered from the different people that have come into my life. And it's mainly some things to think about. And at the end of the day, I think, every composer that you talk to has developed their own career building on their particular strengths and interests. And their career has to be multifaceted, really. I mean, even very successful art music composers, it's very difficult to make your entire living just on the writing of music, unfortunately. Right, so you're either doing some teaching or some performing, or maybe something completely different or administrative work, or which is really common, some of all of that, yeah, all of it. <laughs> to, yeah, right. To to kind of put it together. Um, so hopefully, when I'm talking about things, it'll give people some ideas and think about well, what does that mean for me? Yeah, because it's very individualistic. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. is that, so you are a uh, professor of composition at, yes. at UH, and you are also the head of the division yes. there, and um, you also lead the Aura Contemporary yeah. Music Ensemble. Yeah. Uh, was excited to read a bit about that and your connection to uh, Australia, some of the, yeah. the Aussie invasion that you did recently. <laughs> yeah. And that's great. You have a, a bit of a connection to Australia, though, right? I do, yeah. When I was finishing my graduate, uh, my doctorate, I finished all my exams and everything. And before I did my final project, I had a Fulbright grant to Sydney. And nice. I studied with the composer Peter Sculthorpe. Yep, yeah, which was absolutely amazing. And I made some really terrific friends, um, composers and performers. And two of them uh, in particular uh, have become, well, actually three of them have become major 
figures of their generation in Australia. One of them is Paul Stanhope, who teaches at the University of Sydney. And for years, we've been talking about trying to do an exchange of some sort. And uh, right before the pandemic happened, they were coming. Yeah, they were coming for nice. uh, four of them. And then the pandemic hit and we had to cancel. So we rescheduled and then we had to reschedule again. And it finally happened this past spring. Oh, good. Yeah. So that was the Aussie evasion. Uh -huh. uh, we did a bunch of Paul's music and we did one brand new piece of four of his students who were chosen from about 50 students who had submitted works. And so I picked what I thought were the best four works and their, their uh, prize was going from Sydney to Houston, cool. which uh, as a Houstonite, I mean, I love Houston, but I was like, Sydney's so amazing, you know, what are we getting? There's no beach, <laughs> there's no... Who's getting the better end of this? Yeah, <laughs> but they actually really, I think, genuinely enjoyed the city, which made me feel good, and they came and they really were very impressed with the level of musicianship in the city. They were, because like some of our students played quartet for the end of time in the Holocaust Museum, and they were impressed with the that as well just the fact that we weren't just playing at the school and um, they loved the museums Rothko Chapel yeah. all that and they just thought what a what a place they were actually very happy and we have a great hall at the University of Houston mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been I have so, yeah it's beautiful like physically beautiful and acoustically amazing and then it's a fully operational opera theater so our productions involve um, projections and lighting and you know all kinds of stuff to make it more than just a concert yeah I've been I've, we were talking a little bit before I hit record about uh, how I, I think there's a lot of new music happening here. You're talking about school yes. musicians in yeah. Houston, and it seems like there is a, a fairly robust new music scene here, which yeah. is awesome. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I know you uh, you were part of Musica, Musica. yeah, yeah, 20, yeah. 2003 to 2014, if I have that right. Yeah, no, that's right. I began at University of Houston in 1999, and then I believe it's 2000, what did you say my first year was? Uh, 2003? 2003. Oh. 2003, no, that's right, 2003. Okay. So 2002, um, several composers at Rice, in fact, most of the young faculty members, there was five of them, and they decided to create Musica because they saw a need in the community for a professional new music ensemble that was a chamber group completely focused on new music. And their model was a composer-based one where the composers are selecting the repertoire, yeah. organizing the players in the rehearsals, and putting the concerts together. And the method we went through, because it's not just a vanity project, we wanted to bring what we would feel is the best new music, and they're still doing it, to Houston. So we decided, because we're doing all this organization and things, and of course we do want to have our own music played, we'll feature one of our works every season. And then the other works will be what we are trying to present to Houston, is this is what's going on out in the world. And so... Yeah. Um, and when we did that, there were some groups like the Camera of Houston that were doing a fair amount of contemporary music. Okay. Um, but there wasn't anyone really who was completely dedicated to it. Maybe Foundation for Modern Music. That's a group that's in town that does that. Okay. Um, but we kind of brought it to kind of a different level, I think. And then since then, there's a whole bunch of ensembles in town that focus on new music or do a lot of new music yeah. and it's become incredibly vibrant. I mean there's the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra which has commissioned over a hundred pieces in the <laughs> ten years. That, wow. Yeah, over the ten years they've done a chamber orchestra, you know, which is great. There's Apollo Chamber Players which is a group that focuses on world music but w they've commissioned like over 30 pieces themselves and so and then there's a bunch of other smaller groups so you know it, it's really blown up since I've arrived and yeah. and now there's also Texas New Music Ensemble which mm -hmm. is what we're here to talk about yeah. and you know uh, Chad has done just an amazing job of bringing new music so then there's of course all these players that support this whole system. Um, oh, I forgot Loop 38, oh. which is a fairly relatively new group. Um, I think they've been doing it for about six or seven years. And that's a magnificent group. And each one of these groups kind of has their own sound and composers that they gravitate towards. And when you look at it all, it's a wonderful mix. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. It's just, it's just a great thing. And what Chad has done, since we can kind of bring it over to um, Chad's group, is that you know, he came back from getting a doctorate in London 
and he said to me, he called me up and he says, oh, I really want to start a professional ensemble, you know, want to pick your brain and everything. And I said, oh, that sounds great. And he says, it's going to be all Texas composers. Yeah. And I said, oh, good luck with that. <laughs> you know, I said, I just, you know, <clears throat> that's really sad. I'm a Texan, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sure enough, he starts putting it together. And I thought, well, is there going to be enough composers and I was more than pleasantly surprised at the wealth of talent we just have in the state mm -hmm. and you know he's done 10 years of concerts of only Texas composers and the wealth of styles and the level of music that he's presenting is high all across the board and I have to eat my words on that because he's done an amazing job. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your concert and your work. Okay. Uh, I've been listening to a bit of it. I got a sneak peek at the program. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the piece Chaw. Chaw is is kind of referring to something that you put in your mouth, but you don't necessarily swallow. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and specifically, actually, it, I'm referencing Chingering Chaw, which is the kind of uh, folk tune mm -hmm. that Copeland used. and. I was writing a piece for the Copeland House Ensemble, and I thought I would tie it in with Copeland, and then I thought about, well, maybe I'll take something of his and I'll riff on it somehow. But of course, you know, there's copyright issues and things like that. But then I thought about the old American songs, songs that he wrote, and I thought, well, I'll take one of those because those are all just folk songs. And so uh, Chingering Cha, you know, is, is something that singers do for an encore. And it's kind of you know exciting. So then I decided to call the piece Chaw. And you know, it's it's something that's chewed you right and not swallow, but so I'm kind of chewing, if you will, on chingering chaw. Yeah. But kind of taking my own version of it. And ideally we're not gonna do it this way at the festival, but ideally it's nice if you can have someone sing chingering chaw and then go directly into my piece.
thanks for being here. I've been watching you in rehearsals and I've watched you conduct for concerts so far. Tell me a little bit about just what your role has been in the festival so far. Thank you, Steven. So I have been working with composers that have their works premiered at the festival and with a really top-notch ensemble in premiering pieces. So that's basically my role to conduct some of the new works, world premieres, and also to coach some of the composers in conducting, but also I give them tips on, on you know, my opinion on orchestration, how to think more efficient, what could work better from a conductor's standpoint. Not, I don't, I don't ever want to question their artistic vision. When you look at new work and you try to understand the idea that a composer is trying to get across, um, talk to me about uh, how how that process works. I know that's maybe a tricky thing to talk about, but yeah, well, it's it is I think informed on some of the experiences I've had as a performer. I'm a flute player, as a conductor, as a teacher, as an educator. So all these different aspects or hats I've worn in the past within music, even as a producer, play a role. So I try to not necessarily consciously say I am the producer thinking I am the flute is thinking you know it just all happens but I try to offer uh, solutions as as you said um, to how can we bring the message forward in a more obvious more direct beautiful way without the extra unnecessary sounds but sometimes that is part of, of uh, a texture in particular or atmosphere the composer wants. In that case, then I try to offer a solution for it. Why don't we try mutes here? Why don't we try soltesto? Different uh, ideas. And for the most part, composers are open to these suggestions. But really, is it comes from or trying to understand what they want to say. And if I can offer something for them to say it clearly, more effectively, I will do that. Yeah, it's fun to watch you do it. I, I feel like it's a little detail and a little change, and it makes a big difference, but it hasn't altered really the piece in any way. It's really just made a small adjustment that has really opened things up, at least when I watch Yeah, that's the idea. I, usually with young composers, ideas are great, but sometimes oversaturated and so less is more a lot of the times I don't call myself a composer I guess I can call myself a composing editor <laughs> because I offer a piece of my mind as you're very beautifully putting it uh, but I think as I said it comes from a place of trying to be more effective more productive that's a typical conductor in the in the sense of uh, how can we make this happen in less time, more efficient, more beautifully? And of course, as an orchestral musician, the the experience that comes from interacting with other families of instruments, ensemble, playing chamber music. I played a lot of chamber music. And so understanding in a way the mechanics of music, how it is put together, each role of each section or each instrument, and how it may vary, how we're all together, how we're opposing, uh, things like this, to just understand these dynamics helps me give better suggestions. So this is something that I realize about a lot of new music, new chamber music that gets performed. Uh, in, in my experience, much of it, ha of chamber work, has uh, people feel it hasn't necessitated a conductor, some of it. And what I think is great is not only are you a new music enthusiast, you, you have so much feedback that I feel like um, composers don't get directly from the performers a lot of the time when a conductor isn't present. Rarely do they get uh, feedback, unless it's specifically asked. Technical, it's very technical. Yeah, and, and the, what they offer might be a mere suggestion to like just another flavor, not necessarily a solution. Uh, because the performer is coming from his, her perspective. I think this fingering might be better. I think this alternative bowing will work best, uh, but not necessarily, you know, questioning an artistic uh, vision or anything. Um, at least that's that's what I've seen, and so I think it's you know it's important that a composer has his/her vision solid, but also be open to 
actually, yeah, this is this makes more sense. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the times I find that too many ideas, too many uh, things end up going nowhere. And so one, two ideas, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good idea. <laughs> and to really convey a message after, after all, and we need to do it effectively. Otherwise, it, we lose nowadays, now with a short uh, attention span, we lose people. We're going to take a break and listen to an excerpt of a piece by one of the composer participants. This is Sound Therapy by Donovan Walker. You also conduct um, symphonic music. You uh, have worked with Oturo Oferro in New York, and you are won a Grammy. Is that right? Well, I have worked with Arturo Oferro for many years in different capacities. Mm -hmm. Arturo Oferro, great jazz pianist. So he founded the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, where I began working as assistant director of education programs uh, in 2016. My role then was basically to bring music to public schools in New York City, get funding from, from grants, private funding. And so that evolved into a more artistic collaboration. I've learned a lot from Arturo. He's really a one-of-a-kind person. He doesn't define himself in, in, in any genre. Sure. Uh, uh, so that, to me, was very attractive in that when I began working with him, collaborating in, in this organization, I thought of myself as a purely classically trained musician and if I wanted to do anything else I had to either go to school or do something you know and he sort of opened my mind to thinking we're all artists regardless of our discipline we're still artists and we still have something to say we have mastered or specialized rather in a medium whether it's opera symphonic jazz Latin uh, 
musical theater and so on. So anyway, he opened my mind to do different things. And uh, after that, then I started doing artistic uh, partnerships, uh, creative artistic partnerships. And so that led me to take a more of a producing kind of role. In 2017, we did Fandango the Wall, really huge project, um, of course resonated with me as a Mexican musician. We brought the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra to the border of Mexico and San Diego wow. and the US, right in Tijuana and San Diego, to have a Fandango per se, you know, 12, 16 hours of music nonstop. And that led to two albums, one documentary, uh, one book by Kabir Segal, executive producer. And so this project went on tour and it's had, it has had a lot of different uh, versions of Fandango the Wall, the more acoustic version, the more purely Latin Afro-Cuban, the more Son Jarocho version, Mexican uh, genre from Veracruz. And so in these different roles, I've had different capacities. So from producing to conducting to uh, rehearsing to different things. And, you know, that's what I find fascinating from being exposed to other genres. You have to uh, really apply your skills, transferable skills, and, and in the end you learn. So yes, uh, Fandango the Wall has been uh, nominated for a Grammy this past February, uh, the second album of Fandango at the Wall, Fandango the Wall in New York, uh, well, got this beautiful accolade of the Grammy. And uh, it is really an, an effort of a lot of people. I was particularly moved when we had musicians from Veracruz uh, Mexico from a very uh, low-income region that have celebrated Son Jarocho for centuries and that had some of them for the first time being in the US let alone on a stage at the Grammys um, so celebrating their art form celebrating Son Jarocho uh, thanks to the opportunity given by this project so it was a, I, I think it was a very emotional almost historic moment for Mexico, for uh, these like marginalized groups in Mexico that need to be recognized and their art needs to be recognized. And I think there are some important efforts happening uh, in other worlds, in visual arts, of course, uh, in fashion now that uh, designers are adopting some of the patterns from the Huichol families, from the Nahuatl. Uh, so I think it's important that we give visibility to to everyone in Mexico and its rich culture. You have a lecture on Carlos Chavez's music. Um, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about this? This is happening on Saturday. Yeah, so I have worked a lot with um, different composers, of course, but I celebrate composers from uh, Latin America, uh, naturally. And so um, Carlos Chavez has been one of the composers that have piqued my interest for some years. And a few years ago in New York, I had the honor to uh, get acquainted and then very close with the Carlos Chavez family um, who has the composer's estate in the New York City Public Library. So, you know, we developed a, a friendship to this day and I've had the opportunity to, to dive into some of the scores, manuscripts, some of some unpublished uh, works. And so that has led me to discover other composers, uh, some of his students, uh, his uh, history, and how he, Carlos Chavez, truly is Mexico's first international composer in the sense that uh, not only relations, relationships, like international relationships, but rather his vision while still keeping a nationalist voice. So while celebrating indigenous pop, uh, uh, folk music, uh, he still was able to balance this modernist vanguard ideas that he was influenced by, apply them and still, well, develop his unique voice, which I think is, you know, if not whatever composer is looking for, one of the pathos for, for a, for a for a composer to develop, find your own voice, develop it. So I think there's a Carlos Chavez that was exploring and then a Carlos Chavez after 
being exposed to the world, if you could say, but that became nationalist, but with world ideas. Mm -hmm. So this lecture uh, this week will present a summary of, of uh, this composer, his works. We will have a guest from his family, Hannah Angulo, who is the great-granddaughter of composer Carlos Chavez. She will be here with us presenting as well. Uh, we did a similar uh, lecture in Arkansas just a couple of weeks ago where I was a guest conducting and it was it was very interesting that concert because it was tied to a, an exhibition by Diego Rivera. Mm -hmm. uh, Diego Rivera's America is the title of the exhibition and so it's his vision of both the US and Mexico and Diego Rivera and Carlos Chavez had a close friendship as, as well as with uh, Frida Kahlo. So all these artists, you know, one way or another, they influence their, their work, their aesthetic. And Carlos Chavez also traveled a lot uh, to New York. He was a guest conductor in New York, um, was commissioned by the ballet, uh, and so formed a friendship with Copeland, Stravinsky, John Cage, Varese. So definitely received influence from different schools, but I think stayed true to himself. I'm sitting here with Executive Director Martin Quiroga, and we are going to talk a bit about the festival, how it's been going so far. Today is Thursday, so at the end of the day is going to be the first composer concert. That's correct. Yeah, we're here. It's been a lot. So tell me a little bit about the composers. I want to know, first of all, just some logistics, like how many people are here, uh, and then what? Are, how, how did they get here? What, what were they commissioned to write? And Yeah, so we have about... 18 to 20 composers. They've essentially been commissioned to write for uh, the subgroups or the entire Texas New Music Ensemble, um, plus the additional people that have decided to attend the festival. How did the application process go? Did they have to submit something new, something original? Yeah, so the way they submit in the in the program, it's I, I mean, it's just a, a Google Sheet because it's free and I know how to work those. Yeah. Uh, or it's a Google form, excuse me. Um, and they do submit essentially portions of their portfolio. We don't need all of it. They just submit their three best. And it actually in the application itself, it asks them what they want to write for to kind of give us an idea. Um, you know, sometimes they put full symphony. We don't, we don't have a full symphony here. But, uh, you know, some of them sometimes put solo flute. And, well, we have a solo flute, so why don't we just give them exactly what they want? So we try and cater towards what the composers want more than anything else. That's pretty cool that you do that. I didn't know that. Um, they are also all attending these focal sessions and these roundtable sessions. Mm -hmm. What are those about? So uh, the focal sessions, it's Thursday, but they just ended. Uh, mm -hmm. So they've been going nonstop since Monday. They started Monday at around four, no, at noon, um, and they ended yesterday at 6 p.m., um, and so the focal sessions are essentially group lessons with our festival composers, uh, artistic director Chad Robinson, and uh, guest composer Rob Smith. So they've been essentially sharing each other's music in different groups this entire time. Today actually starts the uh, roundtable sessions, which essentially are professional development, and that's where composers get to practice their elevator pitch uh, for example, when they're like at fundraisers or cocktail parties and they're trying to well, get, get money out of donors, um, this is the chance for them to try it out. And they actually work with uh, Chad Robinson, uh, the artistic director, um, since he's, you know, really good at fundraising. So it's full time here. Like it, there's stuff happening kind of from... <laughs> from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Yeah. Except for Tuesday, it's 10 p.m. Yeah. So they'll stay busy to the very end. So, for example, today today and tomorrow, Thursday and Friday, are the big days for them. Mm -hmm. Their babies are about to be showcased to, to the world, essentially. But Saturday, um, Saturday at 8 a.m., they have a workshop with our guest artist, uh, Meg Griffith. So from 8 to 11, they're all going to present their one- to two-minute works that they composed at the beginning of the festival for solo flute to Meg for her to workshop and record for them. And then later that day, they have a variety of lectures to attend. And then that night, they have a concert. So, you know, whereas before, Saturday would have been a free day. Now, again, this was Chad's doing. He, he wanted to, 
do this with Meg and then add more lectures and well I said yes what's been going on in the new music scene and how important is this festival in terms of the new music scene in Houston yeah I mean I would say just like everybody else after COVID it took a big hit so it's nice to just bring the festival back to Houston and remind people that the people who are writing quote-unquote classical music uh, are alive alive and well it's not just Bach and Beethoven but you know we got the Robinsons and the Smiths who are alive and well composing music spreading it out and um, I'll admit I haven't really been to too many concerts myself uh, but I think that's more of just uh, I would say that's really more of a COVID thing where like I got comfortable not going out to a concert and so I already feel the energy of wanting to see and hear more live music specifically new new music to put it in air quotes yeah something Chad was talking about is he was like oh pre-COVID uh, 12 to 13 concerts with Technos New Music Ensemble mm -hmm. a, a year which is insane but a lot of that he said was traveling to different places mm -hmm. um, and something he mentioned with the music festival is wanting it to be in Houston wanting it to be centralized wanting it to be more of a community thing where it's like okay now come check us out and kind of looking at the festival as that kind of opportunity I mean how do you see the festival you know vis-a-vis -vis community building and community building yeah Chad nailed it I mean that's exactly and that was my that's always been my goal at the festival you know to to bring something unique to really to the state of Texas because we really don't have new music festivals in the state um, and you know we have three of the ten largest cities in the country and none of them have really like a new music festival um, of this scope or size yeah I can also say like your um, I'm not gonna say underlings your <laughs> interns my interns your interns and students of yours have been around here during the festival and been active um, and I mean, they seem really excited to be here because it's a learning opportunity for them. But there's there's many of them. And I was talking yeah. with Rob and talking with, I think mostly Rob about it. He's like, yeah, these, you know, I mean, this is an invaluable opportunity for some of these kids. Yeah. So can you say a little bit about that? I mean, I, I already, so during, at the like Linda said, the other 51 weeks out of the year, I'm actually a full-time uh, private lesson teacher and I've been doing it now for half my life I turned turned 36 this year and I started when I was 18 so it's been exactly uh, down the middle in regards to my actual living life um, and I guess it's not now I'm at the point where if I can offer it I will and so I had two students who just graduated from high school both pursuing music although they wouldn't have to pursue music for me to offer them this opportunity they could pursue accounting and if they wanted to do the festival, I'd absolutely <laughs> let them go for it. Yeah. Um, um, but to give them essentially the opportunity to put it on the resume, you know, something as simple as stage managing when you come out of high school seems kind of like a, I don't want to say low tier job, that's not what I mean, but like it's not your perhaps your first job that you would think of. But when you enter college, now you can do work study as a stage stagehand. And I mean, that's really invaluable to the people or it gives you a leg up when you're applying for those jobs. When you say, hey, I just finished an internship doing this. May I have this, you know, not may I have, I've earned this job. <laughs> not may I have it, right? Um, and then, you know, I have, for example, I have another student here who's, she's in 10th grade right now. Um, she, and she's interested in composing. She's been composing for about two to three years. And um, we brought her in today so that she can really, she's currently sitting in the rehearsals um, and she's gonna have a day of checking out rehearsals, lectures, the professional development, ticket to the concert. Yep. Um, so if if I can make it happen, I will. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to listen to another piece by one of the composer participants. This is by Mojgan Misagi, who is the student competition winner. This is her piece, Kimia, the Rare Bird. Thank you. 
it was my first time writing anything for piero ensemble so it was a uh, quite a new experience for me and the whole idea was just you know create something different from what i already done because by then i just graduated from university of houston with my undergrad degree right. and i wanted to you know enter to this world of like for a few months working by my own without being you know uh, in lessons with my professor so i i was feeling kind of like free to do whatever and express my my feelings or whatever i think it's you know cool to use in in my music and basically i started to you know create some rhythms for me the rhythm is very important because i'm coming from iran and in our music rit- rhythm plays an important part and basically i started you know just gathering ideas and making a sketch and um As I was uh, starting the piece something tragic happened and uh, my cousin in Iran uh, who sh- she was a few years younger than me she passed away suddenly and because I was here they gave me the news through you know phone call and I was actually working on my piece while you know some, some of the family member called me and gave me the bad news and you know i was so shocked that i didn't even know like what should i do like cry or i don't know scream or after that i couldn't really focus on you know sitting next to my laptop or piano and working on the same piece and i was uh, keep thinking about her like her picture was in front of me like everywhere i would go i would see her and like every night i would see uh, like uh, nightmares like about you know her her passing and i decided to um make this piece about her so that way um, i can you know at the same time that i'm really sad i can use it in the music so i start to think how i can connect this you know connect her to my music so basically what i started uh, you heard last night it starts very very fast gestures and rhythmic gestures yeah. and i start to think about like how can i connect her name or her existence to to the beginning section and continue from her and make the second section about her her passing so her name is kimia kimia in persian has different name uh, one different translation sorry uh, one translation it's like elixir uh, another translation it's uh, i don't know if you heard of the rara ivis oh, or rare bird So one of other translation of Kimia is uh, Rara Avis and I thought like uh, the name of the piece can be Kimia the rare bird because I feel like she was a rare person very kind human being and uh I I tried to think that how can I bring the idea of bird um to to the music so I uh, developed those like fast flute and clarinet uh Uh, conversation and uh, also i thought about how can i resemble her short life to to my form and i thought uh, my beginning section the lively section be like a very short like the, a lot of you know fast passages happening in a, in a very a short amount of time and that that way i kind of like uh, picture her short life um and after that it, it was a big uh, rest with with a long note for cello it was a moment after her her death and uh i started to you know make this uh dramatic uh melody that we it was very familiar from handel saraban mm-hmm. that it is um, usually played in church when you know some some something is going on like as far as you know someone's passing away um so i start to build uh my second section based on that little motif from handel's 
Saraban and uh, from there there I kind of uh, it was my first block and I made everything on top of that and I uh, keep adding and adding and adding it these, these are like the levels of sadness like the family friends and whoever knew her they have like it, it's built like everyone's singing their their sad uh, song for her yeah. so basically that the piece got like busier and busier and busier and then at the end when it got too busy now it was a time for everything to kind of vanish and then I kind of slowly vanished the uh, flute and then clarinet and then cello and then piano and finally it was violin that was the instrument who start the, the piece, I ended and I brought back the same rhythm that uh, I started with and uh, I slowly start to detune the instrument while she was playing the same rhythm. Detuning the instrument was sign of like, um, you know, decomposing a structure. It can be life, it can be like a family who was you know, is destroyed because they, they lost the important person. So this destruction and like things crash was the reason I did that uh, violin uh, scordatura or detuning the violin. So that was the whole form based on her life story. It feels very organic how the piece processes grief. It feels like this very, uh, like living, living with, a kind of grief and pain but there's also there are very beautiful moments in it yeah i i uh, agree about the melodies um they they are like um you know being from iran a lot of these melodies they are in my head like they're circling around because we used to listen to this type of music and um when i was creating this especially the second section grave i was looking for something that sounds familiar for my family member let's say if they after i recorded this if i send this to her mother she would like enjoy it because this is a melody from home is not like something that she can't connect with so yeah. i was trying to also keep that in mind that this is a very personal composition and it's like about family so i try to keep the culture inside and it was like when i get emotional mostly i write the way i write like you you heard in grave like that's that's what is organic or natural in me if i want to like make it you know sound more technical or interesting or uh, use other extended technique i have to do like uh, extra effort on top of my emotions but this was like my pure emotions that i didn't add any like um effort to you know make it um different it was just me i was reflecting myself uh, in the music that's it for today's show thank you so much for tuning in i want to give a special thank you to audio wizard trey harris for procuring tracks for us i'd also like to extend my thanks to texas new music ensemble for their wonderful performing and also to all the guests who joined us here at relevant tones on this episode and in part one much congratulations to you all on the success of the festival. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Come find out more at acmusic.org.